Welcome to EMG Transformations with Dan Stoll. Each episode will empower you to ignite your inner fire and provide methods to maximize your mental and physical performance. You never know how one valuable insight can make such a big impact. Please leave a five-star review if this episode leaves a positive impact on you. And don't be shy to screenshot and share episodes on social media that you find helpful so we can spread the message and make the world a better place. You never know who may need to hear and the impact it has on them too. We're only scratching the surface. There's so much more to learn. Subscribe and stick around to manage stress, improve your health, and create lasting lifestyle changes. Buckle up and get ready to spark your transformation with Nova Fusion. Welcome to today's episode of EMG Transformations with my friend and teacher, Amanda Allard. Amanda is an instructor at Michigan State University, a communication specialist, and TEDx speaker. She inspires kindness, positivity, and insights that will challenge you to look inward and explore more of who you are. She lights up rooms with her smile, charisma, and confidence. Her energy and presence pulls you in, makes you feel seen, and empowers you to become your best. I'm so excited for this conversation. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Dan. I'm really looking forward to this conversation today. Me too. And before we dive in, I did this little LinkedIn post to promote this episode. And I think it's worth repeating for our listeners because I still remember the first day I met you like it was yesterday and Marketing 250, my mm-hmm. first business business school class at Michigan State. And normally day one is kind of like a syllabus day. We just go through the motions and Basically, we could have just read an email that said everything that the teacher said, (laughs) but you, day one, were starting with impromptu presentations, and I was not prepared, let me tell you guys. (laughs) (laughs) I knew I was in for a long semester, but that class turned out to be really the greatest thing for me, really developed my confidence. I was a shy guy at that time, and you know, even those, those days were filled with anxiety, you always had something, these provoking plans (laughs) just waiting for us. And I mean that in the best way possible, because, you know, through that experience, I learned that pressure creates diamonds and you put us under pressure by forcing us out of our comfort zone. And that really developed my confidence and my resilience. And that shaped me into who I am today and the things that I'm doing today. So Really, thank you so much for being so tough on us because, you know, that's what we need sometimes. Yeah. And I think that, uh, first off, thank you so much. I definitely have a motto when teaching is get comfortable being uncomfortable. And especially when it comes to speech and branding yourself, um, I have a lot of students who come out of their high school courses and they come into college and they come into their speech class and they're like, oh, this is going to be this big blow off class. What do I really need to know about this? But your words have so much power. And I have to, at the beginning of every semester, teach and kind of really market myself and convince my students to say, oh, I need this and I'm not the best at this. 
And I think that you are one of the students that I've, I've taught over 2000 students in the past five years. And I definitely remember the first day you walked in and I remember that moment. And I can say, it, like you said, over the span of those four months in that semester, you grew so much. And I mean, look at you today. This is amazing. And you really took some of those nuggets of information and just took off with it. So I'm very proud of you, Dan. Thank you so much. And that's what it's all about. Like we can get told the information, but we have to apply it. And yes. once we apply yeah. that and do the work, even when it's hard, that's when we're going to get the results and that transformation and become that person we want to be and really step out of our shell. So again, yeah. I'm a big believer time. in knowledge is power. I've, I've been saying this a lot the last year. Like I love that saying knowledge is power, but this last year it really dawned on me. Knowledge isn't powerful unless you take action. So for example, I have knowledge about, uh, you know, the way plants grow, but I don't, that knowledge isn't powerful because I don't use it every day. Right. And so if you want to really hone in on knowledge, you utilize podcasts that you listen to meditations, you dive into, put them into action and that's, and consistently put them into action. Uh, that's where you're really going to see the growth of your mindset and your overall well-being. I love that. Consistency yeah. compounds over time. <laughs> oh, yes. I'm a huge believer in that. Yes. Yeah. So, all right, let's dive into your story now. I would love for you to share a little bit about your backstory and, you know, some of those early struggles that you faced. Yeah. So on paper, if I didn't talk about my childhood, um, it would just seem like I have, I'm about to have a, my PhD in communication um, and I went to school and I just love learning, but where my story really begins is when I was about eight or nine and my mother was falsely accused and incarcerated. And this really flipped our entire family dynamic upside down. Prior to this, my family was a middle class, upper middle class family. We lived on a farm. We, you know, just typical um, four number family, right? My brother and I and my mom and my dad. And when my mom um, went to prison for something that she didn't do, she was sentenced to 12 months, but was released after 10 on good behavior. It really opened and shaped my eyes to the rest of the world. And it also springboarded the rest of my life. And I'll be honest with you. I just came to this realization maybe four years ago, right? Um, I think a lot of people go through traumatic events. And in that trauma, you're it's very hard to find the light at the end of the tunnel. Right. And I'm a big believer in finding opportunity and chaos. And from that big event, that big T trauma that I developed or in, endured during that time, um, I now can like everything else I face in my adult life. I'm like, okay, this is chaotic. This is stressful. What is the opportunity lying within this chaos? Right. And sometimes it doesn't come to me right away. Sometimes it takes years, like I said. So as I stated, my mother went to prison, she was released, and we were totally financially wiped out from lawyer fees, from everything. My dad was basically a single dad for an entire year. I had to step up as a big sister. And, and during that time, it, it was just a broken time. But my escape from everything was learning. And I loved reading and I loved kind of just being in my own bubble because it was the one thing in my life where it's like, we, you didn't need money to learn. I was in a public school, right? I was able to excel as much as I wanted to and nothing was holding me back. 
And when my mom got out of prison, I then pursued softball and we had no money to go to college to, you know, to send me to college. And so softball was definitely like, Hey, you need to figure out how to be good at this because if you can get a scholarship, you can get an education. And as I just previously mentioned, education meant so much to me. So I played softball. I, it was my senior year. I signed to a university in Dallas for a master's and bachelor's paid for super excited. And it was the month before I graduated, the university called me and said they were shutting down the university. And if you don't know anything about um, athletics, once you sign, you basically turn everyone else down. It's kind of like dating, right? You, I turned everyone else down and they had moved on to other players and other people. And so I really had to figure out what is my next move. And I had gone to Concordia University as just a trial and I loved the campus, but it was a D3 school. But at this point, I really had no other option. And it's funny how all of this plays out because up until this point, up until my freshman year of college, my family had kept my mother's incarceration a secret from everyone. I mean, I hadn't even told my closest friends. I hadn't told boyfriends. No one knew. And so I'm sitting there freshman year of college at Concordia. I'm like, why am I here? Right? Like there has to be a reason I'm here. How did I end up here? And ironically, every year they put on a play and the freshman class has to read a book that's associated with just learning and leadership and development. And that year was all about people who were falsely accused and incarcerated. Mm. And I was like, aha, like I need to share my story. And so I, that was the first time I shared my story. And I went in and I remember I talked to the actors who were putting on the play and just kind of gave my testimonial of what secondhand incarceration felt like. And if to the viewers who don't know what secondhand incarceration is, that is when individuals in the family experience the mental kind of psychological distress stressful events that an incarcerated individual might feel, right? So just because I'm not physically locked up doesn't mean that I felt depression, anxiety, um, health risks were associated with people who are um, experienced secondhand incarceration. And America has the highest incarceration rate in the world. And it's really in children who experience secondhand incarceration um really get left in the dust, right? <laughs> because we don't hear about them. We don't talk about them very much, but um, they deal with their own stuff as well. And I'm so grateful that I have a voice now and I have the education to back me to also be the voice of all of these other individuals who have experienced this. But needless to say, I get to my sophomore year and I realized softball just wasn't for me. I had some health-related risk associated with it, some injuries and I said, okay, well, what am I going to do with my life? And I said, I'm kind of good at this education thing. And I love the lifestyle of a professor. So I went on to grad school and I went to Michigan State University for my master's. Loved my master's program so much. Just loved learning theory, realizing I can connect with people that I went on to get my PhD. And um, as I previously mentioned, I am a PhD candidate, which basically means in a month or two, I will defend my dissertation and be Dr. Amanda Allard. So we're kind of nearing the end, but that is kind of um, just in a nutshell, my background and what has led me up into this point. Yeah. I mean, what a story of, you know, those trials that turned into these tribulations and then overcoming that. And for you, a lot of that was 
Well, you had the external factors, of course, but that was internal factors with that secondhand incarceration. So if we can run that back real quick, I'm curious, how did that really impact you at such a young age and especially like socially with your friends and stuff like that? Yeah, great question. Um, That's a really good question. And I'm so glad you asked it. Uh, You're right. The external factors were very difficult. But internally, as a nine-year-old little girl, I didn't have the emotional intelligence to communicate what I'm feeling. And also, too, um, I've learned through my education with supportive communication, when people are under distress, a lot of times they can't see support, right? Right. And this is interesting because when my mom, my mom was incarcerated, uh, she comes from a big family. I come from a huge family. So like everyone had six or eight kids. So all of my aunts and uncles were pitching in. So I had an aunt who would come in and help buy clothes because we just couldn't afford it. Right. Um, She would teach me about because I was on the brink of puberty. So she would come in and say she didn't want to take over that role of being a mom. So she played this delicate act. But It wasn't until I was about 22 that I called her one day and I said, I know you supported me, but I literally cannot remember what you did for me because I blocked out so much of that time and talking about how it affected me socially um, up until this point, you know, I have, if you, if you're watching the video, I have very, very curly hair and my mother would do my hair before class, before school every day. And so up until that point, I had no idea how to do my hair. There's just these womanly touches that moms can do that my dad tried his best, but you know, I would go to school and my hair would literally look so bad. And one of the biggest moments socially that just like really is ingrained in my mind is it was school picture day, the year my mom was incarcerated. And I remember we were running super late. My dad was trying to get me and my brothers school. I was in flip-flops a shirt that was dirty and shorts that I just found and they didn't match. And I, my hair was all disheveled. And I remember I walked in and it was that moment and I can still feel it in my gut where my, it was picture day and I didn't dress up. And I look, and I remember, I just, I remember kids looking at me being like, you wore those flip-flops here, like to school on picture day. And so I don't blame those kids. I'm not angry at those kids, right? Because they also didn't have the emotional intelligence to say something's going on with Amanda, right? And I've also had the pleasure of being able to reach back out to my teachers during elementary and middle school during that time period to say, hey, like, I, it was so hard for me. What was it like teaching me, right? And what they said to me was so profound. They said, you know, Amanda, you were, we knew you were all we all knew you were going through something, but we knew that you had a great support system from your parents. Like we knew your dad was trying his best. We knew the situation with your mom, but there are kids who they don't have support from their mothers and fathers. They, um, we, they were, they needed extra attention. Um, we gave you attention as best we could, but we also, it was interesting. They said, we knew you had something in you that was just really strong and you just figured it out. And you, and I really attest that I think one of my greatest skills is grit, but I will not sit here and say that I wasn't one of the loneliest moments in my entire life and keeping that secret for years, eight, nine years, right. After my mother's incarceration ate away at me and I don't know 
how, where I'd be mentally right now, if I hadn't released it to the public and released that information. Um, even in my TEDx talk, I briefly talk about it. And that was hard because I had to go to my mother and say, Hey, I applied for this TEDx talk and I am going to talk about your incarceration. I'm not going to release the details. Um, because my mother also still has triggers related to it as well. So I have to be conscientious of that as, as well. But during that whole time, I'm sitting here as this nine-year-old girl. I'm like, what is my story in all of this, right? Um, why am I going through this? Because mind you, something that a lot of people don't know is while my mo- mother was going through the trial, my brother has febrile seizures. So if you don't know what febrile seizures are, they are seizures that come on by a spike in your temperature. And my brother during all of this chaos in our life um, was at daycare napping and his fever spiked and he started to have a seizure. My brother's also allergic to the medication that stops seizures. And so when the ambulance came and they gave him that medication, his airways closed up and he flatlined for 30 minutes. And so, I mean, I'm just kind of this, I felt like a fly on the wall, felt very like the black sheep of the family because I I just didn't know what my role is. And I quickly learned when I got to my college career and my academic career I am the voice for my family. And I was this fly on the wall to help other people um, in a variety of different ways. So that's just a little overview of kind of the mental and physical struggle. Um, Physically, uh, I'll go back to that. I gained so much weight as a child. Um, And what's interesting is if I showed progression pictures, you can see, um, the weight I gained. And it was because we didn't have enough money to afford food. So we would go to buffets and we would eat pizzas on Friday night. And you would try and eat as much pizza as you possibly could to, you know, stock up for, you know, cause you didn't know if you were going to be eating leftovers, if you weren't going to eat, be eating. Um, and just like a lot of processed food because our financial situation was poor. And so my mental and physical health really deteriorated. Um, But like I said, keeping that secret for eight, nine years didn't help it either. And so I, like I said, just really want to help people learn how to communicate their struggles more effectively, because you'll be surprised at how you'll be able to connect with those around you. I I have a wider range of audience because of that trauma um, and because I've overcame it versus if I would have never have gone through it. Yeah. Thank you so much for being vulnerable there and sharing all of that. And hearing all of that now in full circle, it really makes me feel like you were put into my life for a reason because I went into your class in 2019 and just like three months before that, I, uh, posted this blog just sharing the first four years of my health journey. And that was something that I was holding on to and I didn't really know how to express it. And when I did, I was just trying the best I could. But hearing all of this, it really helped shape my voice and to be able to tell that story in a more effective way. And like you said, the network and the community and the relationships that you build, because people connect with that or it's just inspiring and they're going through their own battles and, you know, they, they see that light in you that you can overcome those dark times. And 
that's something that I learned to communicate. And it's been one of the best things that I could have done, not only for the networking, but the impact, because when you effectively share that and in a confident way, and even when you're vulnerable still, and you don't know, like just the fact of you doing it, that inspires so much. And I also had an alcoholic father, which is why I wanted to ask that question of how it impacted you, because in school, I couldn't focus on my classes, what I was working on. I was always worried about what am I coming home to? And it seems like during that period, that's kind of what you were battling too, just, just trying to survive at that point. Yeah. And I, if you know anything about attachment styles, um, attachment styles are just an overview. They are developed at 14 months of age, right? And it's basically your connection with your familial bond, right? Whether that's your guardian or your mother or your father. And the best type of attachment style is secure. So these are children who know that they have a safe and secure foundation with their family. Anxious are children who basically feel like they never know what's going to happen next. And then avoidant are parents who are just kind of like not there um, or they don't deal with the emotions or the problems. Right. And what's interesting is 75% of people will not change their attachment style. And your attachment style affects the way you raise kids. It affects who you are attracted to. It affects your marriage. It affects everything. And if you know anything about relationships, relationships are the number one predictor of happiness in your overall life and your mortality. Like your, it doesn't matter how much money you have. It matters how, how your relationships are and the quality of your relationships. Needless to say, big events can affect families. So up until this point, I had a very secure attachment style. Like I said, my life was just blah, bland, right? Like the American dream. And then this happened and then it be, very became anxious, avoidant. You didn't know where things were going and you can change your attachment style. But remember, you have to be aware of it and you have to be able to consistently wake up every day and say, this feeling that I'm feeling of, you know, I should call my significant other and ask him if they are cheating on me, right? I need to suppress that a little bit because that's just my anxious voice talking or, you know, hey, I don't deal well with conflict, so I'm just going to avoid it completely. Hey, if you feel that urge, try and address it. It's going to feel so uncomfortable. I even struggle with it to this day and I try a lot of different techniques. So I'm about to be married and my fiance very much knows that sometimes I not always the best at communicating um, because I even have my struggles, just like there's not the perfect communicator. So I'll tell him, you know, I'm so mad right now. I think I should write it or I'm so mad right now. I need like 30 minutes to just really process what I'm feeling right now. I don't know if I'm just hungry or if I'm really upset. Right. <laughs> um, so, yeah. And, and what's interesting, too, is in family dynamics, my brother, mind you, he flatlined for 30 minutes. I want to clarify, he he came back. So he is definitely this miracle story of, something, but the trauma that it put on my parents, yeah. I would not wish it on the world. But the way my brother experienced my mother's incarceration is a lot different than the way I did because Rob was three. And um, when I tell you we kept my mother's incarceration a secret, we even kept it a secret from him for years. And that was really difficult. And I remember when he was about 13 or 15, he came to my mom and said, something's not adding up, right? Like 
you, you said you were in New York on business because a three-year-old can't, you know, tell distance. And he was like, something's just off. And, you know, my, my mom called me, she said, I don't, it's almost like it's the dark version of telling a, a child that Santa isn't, you know, real. Um, but I, she said, how do you think he's going to take it? I said, he's either going to take it like a champ or he's going to be very upset, but his anger is valid. And, um, we're going to overcome it as a family and just be really strong. And Rob took it like a champ. And, um, my brother and I have this really unique bond because of it, but, um, yeah, all of that really affect affected my mindset and it affected the way I teach as well. Um, like I said, I think students come into my class and I'm very blunt and I'm very straightforward and I don't mean to be rude. And I know that's kind of maybe an ex expect expectancy violation for some people because I'm this, I'm from the South. I'm supposed to be, you know, and I am, I'm, I like to carry myself very well. I hold a lot of the values my grandma taught me, but when it comes to teaching, I sometimes have to shock my students and yeah, just get them out of their comfort zones because when you go to inner conflict or when you go to try and connect with people, it's going to be awkward. And especially post pandemic, what I noticed with a lot of my students is their fear of connecting with people. Right. And so communicating and public speaking, people are more scared of it than death. Why is that? Right. A big part of it is think about your primal state, right? Like where we come from. A bunch of eyes on you all at once meant danger hundreds of years ago. And as much as we like to think we've evolved from our ancestors, we're very much similar to them. So if we have a bunch of eyes on us, we're worried about saving face, about messing up. We're afraid of the shame that's going to come with it. Okay. And what I learned over the years is if something scares you, you should do it. Because one of two things are, is going to happen. You're either going to learn, hey, I never want to do that again. Or, wow, I need to pursue this because I'm growing and I'm developing. And what do we put on this earth if we're not meant to grow and develop and help each other? Whatever role you're in, right? Um, and so that's kind of um, a part of where my mindset is today. Yeah. yeah. And I'm curious, like, do you feel that those early experiences are why you're so passionate about empathy today? Yes. So when my mother was incarcerated, we went and visited her every single weekend. My mother was probably the most visited <laughs> um, inmate at that time yeah. because she was only stationed an hour and a half, but we would wake up every Saturday and we would go and we'd spend all day with her. And I met so many women who were in the wrong place at the wrong time, who um, were also falsely accused and incarcerated. I met women who were just products of their environment, right? They were individuals who grew up in Fifth Ward in Houston, and that's the lifestyle that they know nothing different than crime and violence, right? Um, and then also, too, I got to spend a lot of time with the the, the kids um, that were my age, and we would play together. We'd play kickball and stuff. But Afterwards, when I went to Concordia, Concordia is huge on service learning and leadership. And I'm also a big believer of that as well. If you're going to be a leader, you need to be a leader that serves your people. And so the first year or two, you spend a lot of time. I mean, it was required for us to do volunteer work 
for classes, five hours every class. And at first, when you're 18, you're like, oh my God, right? But I went to nursing homes and I got to speak with the elderly. I went and built homes for Habitat for Humanity. But my most cherished memories are going to the Juvenile Delinquent Center in Giddings. And it's an all boys juvenile delinquent center. And I was able to connect with them very well because I understood somewhat of what they were going through. Not exactly. I, I, I will never totally understand what they were going through, but I started realizing that these are boys who are nine, 10, 11, up to 18. And they just, it's some, for some of them, it's safer to be in the juvie than going back home. And they're scared of going back home because of what's outside their doorstep. And it really just opened my eyes to, you never know what someone's going through. And then I took that into my teaching of, I never knew what my students were going through. And I remember, Dan, when you walked into class, you were very quiet. And I just knew you had a lion in you that I was like trying to get out for dear life. Um, And I never know where my students are coming from, right? Some are coming from really unique backgrounds where, you know, they're in the top 1% of earners in Michigan um, or the world. And then I have some who are coming from, like I said, Fifth Ward, and they're they're at Michigan State for on a scholarship, and they're just super grateful. Um, I've met students who don't speak any English before they come to Michigan State. And they, and I mean, how brave, how brave, to come to a, a university outside of your home country. And it just really, you have to have empathy to be able to connect. But it wasn't until I started teaching diversity and communication that I really understood the power of empathy. So um, I'll take us back to 2022 summer. Um, if you, When you are a graduate student, they often will tell you what you're teaching because they need your help teaching it. And they asked me to teach diversity and communication. And just for clarification, um, I have my PhD in communication, but what does that mean, right? Um, A lot of people may not know. I personally specialize in interpersonal communication. So relationships, friendships, marriage. So when they asked me to teach DEI, I was like, oh my gosh, I did not feel equipped Um, because I really had at this point been teetering between business and branding yourself, which I absolutely love and interpersonal relationships. And I was like, I have no idea how I'm going to teach this course. And I quickly realized that I had this really unique opportunity to teach people how to be kind to one another. Because as a reminder, this is post-2020 when racial tensions are super high People are scared to talk to people about race, politics, the word privilege. I had a whole lecture um, with my students on what does privilege mean to you? And the crickets in the classroom was unbelievable. But in that class and in all of my classes, and I'm sure you can attest to this, Dan, I really want my students to be vulnerable and it's a safe place for us to learn. Because if you don't have a safe place to make mistakes, I want you to fail. I want you to say all the dumb stuff that you would say that but I, in my classroom, but I don't want you to say it to someone out on the street where you, you know, it could really harm your reputation and networking capabilities. And so I taught it for the summer and I was like, oh my gosh, I have like this awesome opportunity. And so the fall, I begged to teach it. 
I was begging to teach this course and I utilized the book, The Art of Empathy. And it starts off with just being able to communicate your emotions and knowing what your emotions are saying to you. And so, for example, when you feel anger, what does anger mean? I can tell you that just from teaching, a lot of people don't know what anger is trying to communicate to yourself. So there's a, um, a type of therapy called emotion focused therapy. And basically it all, it personifies the emotions, right? So instead of thinking I'm angry state, anger is overtaking my life right now. Right. So like separate yourself from anger, but then you ask anger, why are you here? Right. What, why am I angry? And a lot of times anger comes up because a part of your identity has been threatened. And so then if you're able to say, what, what was it that this person said that threatened my identity? And then if you're able to go down that rabbit hole, you can really start to, instead of being angry at the other person, look internally, right? And saying, what does this mean for me? And to be able to be empathetic, you also have to be very socially aware of yourself. So that was the first thing I did with my students. And um, I did a lot of reflections. And one reflection really stood out to me. I had this um, 22 year old male who I asked the the task was, I want you to go your the entire day and I want you to write down what emotions you felt throughout the day, what it was trying to communicate with you. So like there was this page in the book that basically like helped you decipher it. And at the and I said, I want you to reflect on it. And at the end, this male student said, I never knew that I had more than one emotion in one day. Mm -hmm. And we all have so many emotions. It's not just male or female. Men have just as many emotions as women. Um, social nor socially, how we communicate those are differently different, right? Um, but we all have emotions, and if you're not even aware of them, how how does that affect your relationships? How does it affect your ability to have an educated conversation about difficult topics such as race, politics, uh, sexuality, you name it? So. Um, empathy is also something that I value a lot with my teaching and in everything I do. Yeah. And something that really sticks out to me in there is that I had to learn that we're all mirrors. So if, you know, if I feel threatened by an anger or something just like, you know, gets me going, I got to pause and be like, okay, what is this trigger trying to tell me? And usually if I see like, okay, I pick it up, someone did this. It's like, okay, do I do that in certain situations that I don't like about myself? And normally it always comes back to that inner work and not projecting your feelings, but trying to figure out what they mean and why they're making you feel this way. And that can, that's some self-awareness. That's some serious self-awareness that takes some work. 100%. And I went to years of therapy because especially, and it started when I was in college, right? Because I was trying to really parse out what was going on emotionally with me based off of my mother's incarceration and just my life. And it wasn't until I discovered ACT therapy, right. ACT stands for action. Um, and everybody's different, right? So some people do really well with talk therapy. Um, and I'm not a therapist. I'm going to clarify that I'm not a therapist, but I have had to take a lot of, um, human development and family theory courses. So I'm aware of them. Um, but, and I've gone through them myself. But some people do well with talk therapy. I did well with action therapy. So I'm not the best with talk therapy. Every now and then I might need it. But 
I need to know, okay, I'm feeling sad. What are the actions I can take to get myself out of this? And then the little researcher in me realized, ooh, what Dan does to get him el- himself out of sadness isn't the same thing that I need to do, right? Maybe I need to journal. Maybe I need to meditate. Maybe I need to go for a walk. Maybe I need to avoid it for a little bit and then come back to it, right? Everybody is different. So that was, um, act therapy was huge for me and actually got me out of therapy completely because I was able to get the tools that I needed and I put them into practice. The other thing that really stood out to me was inner family systems. And this was described to me by one of my good friends who is a behavioral specialist. And I want you to think of inner family systems. This is how it was communicated to me. Think of it as like, you have this table in your mind. Okay. And there are a lot of different versions of who we are, right? So I'll use you, Dan, as an example. Dan on this podcast is not the same Dan when he's at home with his friends, right? And Dan with his friends is different than Dan with his mom. And Dan with his mom is different than Dan at work, okay? So we all have these different types of personalities and they're based off of what we were taught socially um, and just all of our life experiences. They And at this table is every version of you. Who are you not allowing at the table? What part of yourself are you really ashamed of that you're not allowing to sit at the table and have a say? For me, for a long time, it was that nine-year-old girl. And I hid her off in the corner and I said, nope, we're going to hide this. She's not real. We're not going to acknowledge this. Um, But bringing her to the table was a huge part of my self-awareness. Um, and you, you, and allowing every part of myself and not being ashamed. Um, and like I said, going back to that shame, Dr. Brene Brown talks so much about it, but I'll talk about it here too. For a long time, I was ashamed of my mother's incarceration. I was ashamed of who I was, where I was at in that time point. And now, like I said, I became self-aware and I became, I became content with that part of my life. And I, I appreciate that part of my life because it, And I've come to terms with it because now I am the person I am today. It's going to make me a better wife. It's going to make me a better mother. It's going to make me a better friend. It saved my life in the long run. But in that moment when I was nine, did it feel like it was saving my life? Absolutely not. So um, again, just finding this is the opportunity in chaos. And like I said, it's going to, it can come the same month. It could come 10 years from then, but it'll always come. Yeah, that, that's so good. It got me thinking, like, who am I leaving out at the table right now? And yeah. it was that sick version of me that I held on to and I kept away. And there's even parts now that, like, there's so many layers of my illness, like, on a daily basis of the things I still battle that I just don't talk about because I don't think they're relevant or I just don't want to share that side of me because it's like, you don't need to know that. But that that's the thing that like when we hold on to those and we bury them, we can just acknowledge them to ourselves and accept it and we can move forward. We don't have to go public with everything that we do, yeah. or if we just write it in a journal to get it out, that can be so effective to help manage those emotions and really go through them with a more objective outlook and not just suppress it and beat yourself up about it say you're dumb or you're worthless like all of those bad things like you don't have to go that route you can just write it out tell yourself it and release it like that's that's the best way to do it and some people um 
my mother loves, uh, loves releasing through burning. Um, so, you know, writing it up, really letting it out and it's a form of purging, right. Um, but writing is super effective. Some people work out, some people do a lot of different things. So yeah, I totally agree with you. Just acknowledging it. You don't have to release everything. Um, cause you need to even keep some things private. I love Dolly Parton cause I'm from Texas. Right. And so I think of her in this moment because, her husband, who she's been married to for decades, has never really been in the public eye, but she keeps that part of herself very safe and private and secure. And I think it's important for us all to have things that are intimate to just us. They don't always have to be shared with everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Now, another topic that you're really passionate about, loneliness, which kind of follows into this. I saw this report that like 60% of us are feeling lonely. And then I heard on another podcast, Heather Monahan, her guest was saying how loneliness is actually worse to your health than obesity and smoking, which at first hand look like that's insane to me. So I'm curious, <laughs> like, do you have any advice to like spark those deeper connections and get out of that? Yes. So um, in my TEDx talk, I use the acronym anomaly. Um, and I start off with just by talking about being aware, which we've already touched on, um, get comfortable being uncomfortable. So never get comfortable with just the status quo and the norms of what you think life should be. Um, be open to hearing other people's viewpoints and opinions. Um, make a difference in everything you do. Agree to disagree listen is super important and yearn for connection. And so that's where the basis of everything is, is we have to yearn to connect with people. I could have been a hermit crab up until this point. I could have done the woe is me card for the last 15 years. And I cannot imagine where my physical and mental health would be if I still had that mindset. Um, and it wasn't until I connected with people and I said, Hey, I'm having this problem. Because again, it goes back to what I said earlier. I think we're all put on this earth in this in this lifetime to help people. I don't care if you're a barista. I don't care if you're working at a car wash. I don't care if you're the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. We're all just helping each other with our lives, okay? And in fact, there was a TEDx talk that talked about obituaries. And this individual basically did a qualitative analysis where he went through all the obituaries and looked for like the most commonly used word. And the word is help. We're all just helping everyone. And I've noticed post pandemic, we're very scared to ask for help. And it's important to ask for help. It's important to connect with people. And I noticed it, especially in my students, Um, they would be so hesitant to come to me and say, Hey, I'm not doing okay mentally. Um, I need a break right? Because they were scared of how I would react or they thought I would get upset or they'd get angry. And so that goes back to assuming you don't want to assume what someone's going to say or do. Um, And you also don't want to be avoidant of people. If you want to stop being lonely, connect with people. And in my TED talk, I had this activity and I, where I asked participants in the crowd to stand up and to just make eye contact for 30 seconds with the person sitting next to them. And what was so fascinating is, and and Dan was there, so I'm sure Dan can can attest to this, but you could feel the energy in the room change and how connected everyone in the entire audience instantly felt because they had interacted with each other for just 
30 seconds. And Dan, in fact, right, you were there by yourself and um, you, who did you do the activity with? Yeah. So there was this like husband and wife, like two seats next to me. I was just chilling by myself and she saw that I was by myself. So she turned her back to her husband and looked at me and she had that connection with me because she wanted to make sure that I was involved and I wasn't feeling lonely during that. So that speaks to how impactful that was and the ripple effect that it can have. Yeah. And it's something that I mean, there were probably a thousand people at the TED Talk and yeah, the ripple effect that it has. So make eye contact, talk to people. I had this activity with students and I'll give it as a challenge, a little bit of homework for all of your viewers today. I want you to go out and I want you to give three to five compliments today. And once those compliments happen, I don't care if it's, oh my gosh, you have really beautiful hair. Follow up with a question, a what, why, how question. Um, what do you do to make it look like that? Um, where did you get those AirPods? They're the coolest, right? Um, oh my gosh, you love air. Who are you listening to? Taylor Swift. I love Taylor Swift. Right. And so, and I, so I had my students do that activity and they were like, I made a friend instead of walking to class with my AirPods in, I'm now getting lunch with this girl I met at the bus stop. Wow. Like, and so it's that quick. And, um, we don't have to be lonely. And I think a big misconception is we are going to TikTok and we're going to social media and we're going to all these platforms looking for ways to get out of loneliness. In reality, it's free and you have all of the power to do it. Yeah, this is so good. And I have a caveat to it actually, because, you know, like we're both in the entrepreneurial space and they say it's lonely at the top. And it's even hard to find people with a similar mindset that are and the standards that you have to have and accomplish these goals and finding those right people can be difficult, especially if you're still like in your hometown or something that you just don't know people in your immediate circle like that. And at that point, it might be like, oh, you should better, it's better off to ride solo and be lonely than ride with the wrong company. What do you think about that? Oh, my. Another great question um, and something that I've been thinking about a lot. So when I was getting my education and going into grad school, they were predicting by 2030, the majority of individuals in America would have a master's degree. Right. And so I was like, I need to go do this. I, I went to grad school for a variety of reasons, which I already talked about. But um, grad school was ma my master's program was cool. It was okay. Right. Like I was like, this is tough and rigorous, but like I could connect with a lot of people. Cause there's a lot of people who have master's degrees. When I was going into my PhD program, everyone was super supportive. They were like, go Amanda, you know, but things changed once I got into the PhD program and people started communicating with me differently and it did get very lonely. Um, and what I mean by this is a lot of people don't know what a PhD entails. Talking to someone who has a PhD can be make you feel really inferior. Um, I think people a lot of times will compare themselves to me. So for example, I one time was just talking to a woman at a party and I said, she said, what do you do for a living? I said, I'm a PhD student. And she was like, I'm just a stay at home mom. And I like the conversation instantly changed. And I was like, that's a 
that's an incredibly important job, right? Like I, sometimes I wish I was a stay at home mom, um, because it seems so much better than what, you know, where I'm at in life. Right. Um, I would love to be a stay at home mom someday for a stint of period. Cause I think that what mothers do in this world, phenomenal, right? Like we raise the future leaders. We're teaching empathy. We're teaching emotions. Like you, just as much as you need a dad in your life, you need a mom, like you need both. Right. Or those type of figures, but it got very lonely, especially because I'm a first gen PhD student. So no one knows what goes into it. And it definitely got very, it it definitely can be very lonely. And for a while there, like you said, I became a hermit crab, even in my PhD program, where it was like, I felt like I had no friends. I felt like all I did was work, 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 work. And when I tell you, you work in a PhD program for, um, uh, cause this is something I wish I would have known. You will be putting 16 to 18 hour days in some days. You will be working weekends. You do work during the summer. A lot of times you don't know what the end goal is. You're just working. Right. And the whole goal is their steps. So the first goal is to try and get out of your coursework. Then the next step is to get done with your prelim or your comps, your comprehensive exams. And then the next one is your dissertation. And then, then you're finally, you've arrived. Right. But at academia is a place where it's very enriching and there's a lot of freedom to do what you want with your time. But like I said, it can just be very lonely because nobody really understands what you're doing. Yeah. And so what I started to do is I started to reach out to my girlfriends and I've noticed that when, but prior to this, I was like, nobody reaches out to me. They don't want to hang out with me. They don't reach out to me. And I had a mentor who basically said, Amanda, there are two types of people in this life. There are people who reach out and there are people who wait to be contacted both for a variety of reasons. Right. And she said, it seems like you are the person who reaches out and it's so true. And what I noticed is I was like, okay, I'm going to start reaching out to my girlfriends and wives of, you know, couples that my fiance and I like going out with. And I would just say, Hey, do you want to go have a girl's day? And afterwards they'd be like, oh my gosh, this was so nice and blah, 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 blah. And I started making it a priority in my life. Am I saying that there are times that I definitely get in work mode and I totally forget about girls days 100%, right? But I have to fit those nuggets of time in. And what you'll find is I recently had a girlfriend who basically reached out to me, one who I never in a million years would have thought would reach out to me. I'm the one who usually reaches out to them and they said, Hey, I want to hang out with you. And I was like, Oh my gosh. Right. Um, and it's both the same for men and women, women, we are, there's a lot of demands on women nowadays, right. To be moms, to be wives, to go out and also make a six figure career. Um, but also be just this wonderful entity. Right. And it's a lot of demands. And a lot of times you put yourself on the back burner and you put your friends on the back burner. But when I tell you those relationships are more critical and the quality of your relationships and your girlfriend relationships are to your overall health, I think women would start prioritizing it more. Um, so yeah, I, um, it, it can be very lonely. It can definitely, and, and a lot of people just don't know what, like, like you, like you were saying, they don't know what it entails. Or if you start to create a business, they're like, you can come up with a lot of negative talk. Like, what does that even look like? Or like the big one is how are you going to make money off of that? I don't know if you got that one, Dan. Um, yeah. 
So like, how much do you charge? Like, what are you making yearly? And I think what's cool about the silver lining of the pandemic is I've noticed a lot of people realize life is too short to do things that you don't like doing. Right. Yeah. And when I am teaching 18 to 22 year olds, a lot of times they're not thinking about what they really want. So they go, they graduate and they go to jobs and they realize that they're unfulfilled and they're at that job for 10 years because they have a lifestyle that is based around that career. And it's a lot harder to leave and take the risk, start a business, um, give yourself some time and ask for help. There are more people who are willing to help you than you would ever be ever even realize that are out there to help you. You just have to ask. So going back to loneliness, yearn to connect with people, ask for help. And those are the two key takeaways that I would have to say if you want to get out of loneliness. Yeah, that's so good. And that just is bringing up another on the spot question is why is asking for help so hard? Because like that's something that we all feel, but we're all in agreement that it's the strongest thing that you can do. So like, where's that? that that rift that we can't really get over that i i think there's a lot of different avenues for this question but i'll I'll, i think it goes back to fear it's just this overwhelming sense of fear of being seen as incompetent not being able to do it going back to my students a big thing with gen z right now is that they don't ask for help so they go into corporations And I've talked to CEOs and I've talked to business owners and they're like, we don't know what to do with Gen Z, right? They, they say they can do something and then they totally fail at it. And we just aren't giving them the jobs anymore. But if they would have just said, Hey, I don't know how to do this. It, we would have been willing to help them. So unfortunately, MSU had a big mass shooting this past February in 2023. And it was really traumatic. And I was teaching during that time online and I was rearranging the course and I was asking my students, you know, hey, we're this entity, we're this group, we've known each other for about two months now. How should we structure this course, right? And nobody said anything. They just said, we we agree with what you you came up with to change the syllabus and fit everything in for this semester. Okay, following that, evening, I had students who had reached out anonymously and basically said like, they're overwhelmed. They don't feel confident with getting everything done. And I'm sitting here, I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Right. Like why wasn't this communicated earlier? Yeah. Then I realized they don't want their name associated with it and they don't want to be seen with it. So I sent out an anonymous poll And I had pretty much the majority of my students reach out and they all wanted this one project to be pushed back a week. Not a big deal, right? I was like totally willing to accommodate. So we get back to class that next week and I said, I am not someone to avoid conflict and I'm not going to skirt past this issue because I want to help you all. This this could be an issue for you when you go to the corporate world, right? Um, You have to communicate your disgruntled feelings, how you feel. And there's a way of communicating it, but if you never practice it, you're never going to be good at it. And so I asked him, I said, why, why didn't y'all ask for help? And this student looked at me and said, 
I'm I'm just so scared of being seen as incompetent. And I said, it makes you seem more incompetent that you aren't able to communicate your, you know, disgruntled feelings or your stressors than, than not. Right. And so I would say, why don't, why don't we ask for help? I think it's, I think it all goes down to fear and shame. And I think it's one thing I taught in diversity, my diversity and communication class is when we go to the corporate world, there are five generations working with each other, five. And it's the most generations that have ever worked with each other in the history of ever. Right. And so it's really easy for baby boomers to look at Gen Z and say that they don't know anything, right? And to go into those stereotypes, they're lazy, they're addicted vice to their versa. phones, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> yeah, and vice versa. And then it's real easy for Gen Z to look at baby boomers and say, oh my gosh, all they care about is like retirement and their family. And that all stemmed back to empathy. And I think I did this activity in Marketing 250 where I would have people write out the stereotypes for both gener- gen- generations, baby boomers and Gen Z. You remember that? Yeah. And it's like, okay, well, why- yeah, good. And so what do you remember from it, Dan? I just remember doing it, but we had these, we all had these perceptions about and these stereotypes and then we challenged those stereotypes. So we ended up sharing with the class, like, what were your findings? And then it was like, was this true or not? Like, is this actually the person? And then I think it was something that we shouldn't judge one person based off of their demographic, get to know that person first and go from there. Exactly. There's, um, and it goes, and it can even go to politics, right? Um, Whether you're Democrat or Republican, just because you met one Republican who maybe thinks one way and one Democrat who thinks another way doesn't mean all of them think that way. And I think that what a lot of people don't understand is how influential the media can be on our viewpoints. And so, and maybe you do, maybe you do realize that the media can be so influential, but my challenge, I have a lot of challenge. My challenge is to you is I, if you're going to watch one side of an argument, I challenge you to watch the other side and be open-minded to hearing their viewpoints. And what you'll be surprised to find is that a lot of times we overlap with each other. A lot of times we aren't seeing things um, that other people see. So for example, there, this reminds me of um, a book I used that was written by Monica Guzman. She's a reporter from Seattle. She is very open that she comes from a Republican family, but she is democratic. And she put together, I think it was before the 2020 election, she got Republicans and Democrats to sit down um, and she took the Democrats, they got on a bus and they went and they interviewed the Republicans and they did kind of a pre and post test of their viewpoints. And what the Democrats left saying was that I didn't realize how much the Republicans know more about what's going on in the city than we do. And it's because as farmers, they had to go into the city more often than people in the city had to go to the farms. Right. Um, so it was just a really eye-opening experience and they wouldn't have had that if they wouldn't have been willing to be vulnerable, get comfortable being uncomfortable, being open-minded, listen to them, yearn to connect with someone from a different background. So yeah, I think that asking for help and connecting and empathy all really correlate and tie together. 
Yeah. And I remember it came back to removing those biases too. Like we talked about like six or something biases, like the halo effect and these other ones. Oh yeah. <laughs> like so there's I, the fundamental attribution error. There's the halo effect. Um, and there's confirmation bias, but all of these are cognitive biases and your, your perception skewed, right? So I'll give you just a basic, basic example. Um, fundamental attribution theory is basically where you attribute someone else's flaws to who they are as an individual, but your flaws to external factors. Yeah. So think about when you're driving, if you have really bad road rage, right? And yeah, and you, you drive and someone cuts you off. They are scum of the earth, right? And, but let's say you do the same thing. You cut someone off, but it's because you're in a rush to work. You're running late, right? You're a good person. And I think at the core of all of us, we are innate good people, but sometimes we just do bad things or we think poorly or our perceptions skew our opinions. And again, it all goes back to just being open-minded, but those biases, especially in the corporate world, because I'm sure a lot of your viewers have jobs and burnout is real. And there's a lot of moving parts in corporations right now where basically they're focusing on DEI and integrating all these different viewpoints and opinions. And I will say something that really opened my eyes. It was before I taught diversity, equity, or diversity and communication. In corporations right now, we're really focused on diversity and equity, right? So making sure that we have a, a diverse group of people, but also equitable resources for those individuals. Great. But I had a, a faculty member at Michigan State say, none of that matters if we don't include everyone at the table it all goes to waste. So just because you have a big group of people from all over the world who have equitable resources, if you don't make all of them feel like they have a say, they belong and they're included, your DEI initiatives don't matter. And again, how do we make people feel included? It goes back to empathy. And if corporations started focusing on, okay, how do we help our employees become self-aware? How do we help them develop emotional intelligence? How do we help them communicate more effectively with their coworkers? Because at the end of the day, you're going to spend more time with your coworkers than your family most weeks. Right. And so those relationships matter. I'm not saying that you need to be buddy, buddy, best friends with your coworkers, but those relationships also matter. And a lot, and a lot of times we're not taught how to deal with those relationships. And so that's also an area that I'm really passionate about. But if we ha let our biases and our stereotypes dictate the way we view the world, it's just going to be this very narrow view. And you're missing out on a, a lot of beautiful connections that you could make with those around you. Yeah. Like if we're work, I don't know the exact number, but if we're working for like one third of our life and we're around the wrong people during that and a bad culture and it's just toxic and we don't like what we're doing that's going to eat away at the other two thirds of our life. And it's going to linger into those areas. Maybe we're more rude and snappy to our family and our home life. And that just can get down this bad, bad snowball effect in that sense. And there's another quote that came to my mind. It's uh, tell me and I'll forget, show me, I may remember, but involve me and I'll never forget. It's like something like that. And yeah, that's the involving, like you have to get everyone at the table, get their opinions, make them feel seen and felt and understood. And that's where the, all the pieces will come together. 
I totally agree. And it actually, that influences, it correlates with my teaching method. So I think the years don't come for me, teachers. Um, I think that in certain fields, memorization tests are really important, right? Like I need a doctor to know where a femur is, okay? And they need to be able to point that out. So tests can be very good. But when it comes to relationships, what I noticed was there were just a lot of tests for relationships, like from textbooks. And I was sitting here and I was like, Dan, can you tell me a test that really just resonated with you? I mean, it sticks with you, maybe because it was traumatic, but you know, one that you just learned a lot from. Chances no. are you probably, yeah, I, I can't either, but getting involved. And so a lot of students will think that my capstone courses are difficult, but it's because I'm asking you to act. I'm asking you to have conversations with your parents. I'm at, because that's where you're going to learn how to communicate more effectively by doing and getting involved than if you just take a test. Right. Um, Cause at the end of the day, my biggest thing as a teacher in anything I do, because I, I I would love to continue teaching at the academic level, but what I realized is is that I think I'm I'm I actually feel like I'm being called to more of the corporate level and older adults and a wider range of audience, right? And people who maybe aren't necessarily able to go back to school or get an education, but teaching people the power of communication, and then you have to actually do it, and so it's all about practice and repetition. And I have a lot of tips and tricks on, on all of that, but um, yeah, we have to get involved with, with each other and corporations. When you sit down for diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings, people are skipping through them. People are clicking through them. They know the right and wrong answers, but if you actually sat them down at a table where there is someone who's Republican, part of the LGBTQ plus community, um, Caucasian, African-American, Hispanic, and you ask them to discuss what is privilege, it's going to stick with them a lot longer. And so I have another example of this. I identify as a straight female. And when it came time for me to teach about sexuality and diversity and communication, I had, I was not credible to do that. Right. And I had a good friend who went and got a tattoo and I went with her and the tattoo artist identified as transgender and they were in the process of transgendering or transitioning. And I had so many questions and this individual was so kind and nice and just answered all of them. Right. And they were respectful questions. Like I was, I just want to know, like, where does this stem from? How do you view religion? Right. And like I said, they were just really open. And that's something that I asked my partner the other day, uh, a skill of mine. He said, you're really good at connecting with people. And I think what it is, is I'm not afraid to ask questions and if someone doesn't want to answer that question, they'll they'll tell me if they don't want to answer it, right? But a lot of people are just scared to ask the questions. So it sparked this idea in my head. This is how I'm learning about the LGBTQ plus community, right? And I said, instead of having my students sit there, read a chapter out of a book that does give really good information and then have them have like, I don't know, this discussion because on it where if I had 35 students, two of them had disclosed to me in private in the reflections, they hadn't come out of the closet yet. And the majority are straight, right? So it dawned on me, they need to have these conversations. So what I did is I put together a panel of individuals. I had an individual who was transgender. I had an individual who identified as gay. 
Um, I had an individual who identified as lesbian and this individual was in their, um, their, their middle age. So they remember when, you know, individuals who were with the same sex had no rights, right. Whatsoever. And I had an individual who used to identify as bisexual and now identifies as straight because that's also a possibility. Right. And I had the students write out questions and I had a panel and I interviewed them and it was an hour and a half. And I had a student who emailed me afterwards and said, I used to hate these individuals, hate them because they went against my religious beliefs. But now I've learned to love them for where they're at. And I respect them for being so courageous. And I view them in a completely different light. Do you think that would have happened if they would have had a test on a chapter book? And so I think that but the issue with corporations is, is how do we go about funding, right? Like, how do we fund those activities? How do we how do we get that involved? Because that takes time and work. And HR is over here doing a lot already. You know, we have this diversity, equity, and inclusion initiative over here that's also working their tail end off. Um, so there's a lot of different ways to view that avenue. But the big thing is just being self-aware, being empathetic, and just having those conversations of what are we missing? Yeah. Well, that's, that's powerful. First off, that student's response of that transition from hate to accepting and loving even and loving them where they're at, you said, like, that is a powerful transition from a 90 minute panel conversation. Like, that speaks volumes right there. And, you know, since we're talking about getting involved, I'm curious, like, what's your relationship with failure these days? And, I know your relationship with it already, but for someone with maybe a negative association with that, what are some tips to maybe like ease that mindset a little bit? Great question. I, failure is interesting to me because, and it's interesting to me because last summer I was interviewing for an internship. I just needed like a part-time gig during grad school. And I had, I was getting interviewed and this individual looked at me and said, it seems like you've never failed at anything. And it totally jolted me because I fail every single day. And there's a saying that my fiance said, if you don't fail at one thing a day, you didn't, you didn't have a good day. And so he, you know, we'll, we'll sometimes come home and I'll say like, what'd you do really well? And then like, what did you fail at? What is something you messed up? And it may be that you, you misspelled a name to on an email, right? And you, you're, but it's a way of growing and learning. The way I view failure is it's a necessity. And I think it's super crucial and important for people to fail at whatever they're doing. But being able to pick yourself back up and learning and growing from it. And I have, I guess the biggest tip that I would say is, and something I do regularly is I allow myself, I call it like a failure, like a, a down moment, I guess you could say, where let's say I fail at something and it's just eating away at me. And I, and I just want to sink into the couch. I just want to veg out on pizza and, you know, watch TV. And like, no, I'm, I want to procrastinate and avoid this issue at all costs. I will allow myself some time to feel that way. I leave space for that. Right. But I have a limit on it. I have a time limit on it. David Goggins, I think, even talks about this in his first book is like he allows himself a little bit of time, but then he gets back up. 
And what you'll find is when you go back to address it, you'll be smarter. You'll be better at handling the situation than you were before. Um, one of the biggest failures I ever had, it was in regards to my thesis. So I, up until that point, I was very punctual. I got everything done on time. I was this grade A student, you know, and I got to grad school and the year 2020, I went through a major um, re relationship breakup. I was alone. The pandemic was happening and I just did not meet my deadlines. And I was a year behind where I was supposed to be. Mm. And I could have sat there. I could have dropped out. I could have, at the end of the day, I was so, I didn't feel equipped to write that. And I didn't feel smart. And it was, it, it, it was hard learning and growing and writing that much. Right. Um, and it, 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 it made me feel incompetent. So I avoided it, avoided it, avoided it. And it cost me so much time as if I would have just handled it and not procrastinated. I wouldn't have not met my deadlines. And I take that with all of my writing stuff. And I, I take that moving forward, but failure is super important. I say, allow yourself some downtime to acknowledge the failure, because if we don't acknowledge the failure, we're just going to bury it. Right. And repeat it, <laughs> repeat it. And so take some time, acknowledge it, go for a walk um, and come back to it and never, ever, ever give up. Because again, this life is too short for us to let an error such as us feeling incompetent or allowing someone to make us feel incompetent. That's another big thing I would say. Don't allow someone to steal your energy. And we talked about this earlier. You need to go where you're celebrated in life and you need to be in areas and at tables where you are being fed and you're being encouraged and people support you. And if those individuals, I hate to say this, even if they're family need to leave the table or you need to be strong enough to leave the table until you're strong enough to come back or they have developed the awareness to come back into your life. Right. And that comes with a lot of, again, going back to your communication skills of being able to set boundaries. Mm -hmm. A lot of individuals go to therapy and these therapists will say, you need to set boundaries, but what is, what are the actual words you need to use? Right. And I am a huge believer of, you need to say what you mean, but don't say it mean. And you can say, hey, I'm setting this boundary. And these are the consequences if, if you cross this boundary and sticking to them. Because if you set boundaries in life um, and people cross them and you just let them continuously cross them, they're going to assume that those boundaries you're setting are just suggestions when they're not, right? And that kind of ties back into failure. It took me, a, I failed at setting boundaries for years, right? Um I fail at my communication every day. I fail at being empathetic some days. I fail at connecting with people very well because sometimes maybe I'm just having a bad day, but I'm not a bad person. And always reminding yourself of that is like being self-aware of who you are at your core, giving yourself downtime and knowing that failure is part of success. You have to fail to be successful, point blank period. I'm about to start a couple of entrepreneurial endeavors and I can tell you right now, if I would not have failed in grad school, if I had not gone to grad school, if I would not have gone through the last five years, like let's say I would have tried starting all of this back in 2018 when I graduated from my undergrad, would not have happened, would not have happened, would not have the skills and the confidence 
to move forward and start these endeavors. So trust your journey. Everyone's on their own journey. Don't compare yourself to other people. And yeah, embrace those failures. Because at the end of the day, they make you who you are and they're just going to make you a better person. And as long as you can go to sleep at night, knowing that you're continuously growing, that's all that matters. Yeah, that's so good. And I always view failure as like stepping stones to success. So that's, if you just have that mindset, that'll remind you that when you're in those tough times, that there's always a sense of duality. That's another thing that I come back to is that even though things may seem really bad, there's good to be found somewhere. Even if it's a small glimmer of hope, there's something to come out of that situation. Maybe not right now, maybe six months from now or a year from now, you never know how those dots are going to connect looking back. And that's kind of the EMG philosophy, like experiences, mindset growth. We have to have that mindset shift. And coming back to that relationship with failure, do you have any tips to find the opportunity in chaos? Because I know that's something that you like to talk about. Yes, I do. Um, It's kind of my mantra in life right now. Uh, Some tips on finding opportunity in chaos. When things are chaotic in your life, right? So I definitely think of life as like this yin and yang. And there are times where one is overbalancing the other. And it's just chaotic. I say stop and reflect on where you're at physically and mentally, right? Um, Because, for example, and you can attest to this, Dan, with your physical health. If you're physically not doing well, nothing else is going right in your life, right? Um, Because your body's being exerted, um, for, for any reason, whatever physical or mental health you're dealing with, you have to get in alignment with yourself. And then you're able to kind of look out and say, okay, I kind of got this settled. Let me look out into my relationships. And when I teach close relationships, that's what I say first is you have to have this really strong self-love with yourself. Cause if you don't love yourself, how are you supposed to love other people? Yeah. And it's going to be wishy-washy and wavy. And so look internally and then look externally. And then it's this balancing act, right? And it's this constant pressure, not pressure, but this constant movement of moving forward and getting that balance back in line. So finding opportunity in chaos, I'll give you an example. Let's say you are at a job that you hate, you have to be there because that's how you're paying the bills. You have kids, you have mouths to feed, right? What are some opportunities? What are some things you could say yes to that would maybe get you outside of your comfort zone that might make you connect with other people that might, um, might help you grow. It may be that you need to start a book club for your corporation, right? Like in your department say, you know, I hate this job. I am burnt out. I don't have friends. I'm this working mother and I need, I need something in my life. I have no idea how to start a book club. I'm just going to make a flyer and send it out. Try it. Right. Finding opportunity in chaos is also saying yes to things that may make you feel uncomfortable because they may help you get out of that chaos. Um, I call it the year of yes. I always encourage, especially in college, I think that you should have years of yeses where you say yes to everything. I want you to try and be the comp club president. I want you to try and do something that you would never typically do. And what you'll quickly realize is, oh, wow, this is something that I thought I really wanted to do, but I didn't want to do. And you'll quickly realize what 
you need to set up boundaries with and it'll help you grow. Um, but like I said, be patient with finding that opportunity. Do be aware of yourself. Be aware of what you can control externally. You can't control people. That's a big thing. A lot of people like to think that they can control other people, manipulate situations. And in reality, we're humans. We're abstract beings. We're unique creatures, right? Like uh, that's why there's so many communication and relationship theories because you just never know how people are going to act, right? We can make educated guesses, but you just never know how people are going to act. So finding opportunities in chaos, like I said, look inter internally, look externally, and then say yes and constantly move forward and be looking for things that help you grow. And what you'll be surprised is you'll be able to look back and say, oh my gosh, that illness I had now has allowed me to connect with like five people in my job that I would have never have connected with if I wouldn't have used my voice. Um, if I wouldn't have gotten an alignment or realized like, hey, my physical and mental health aren't okay, I wouldn't have realized how it's affecting my romantic relationships. And that's finding those opportunities in the in chaos. I love that mindset and that perspective because, you know, I value the yin yang as well. It's part of my logo. And that's that's what I had to learn in my dark times to just find that little piece, like one thing a day, at least, even though everything else seemed to be just piling on top of you find that one thing and be grateful for it have an attitude of gratitude and that will lead into more things the power of our voice is is it's so powerful it can flip the balance of that yin and yang right if one's overpowering the other and the way you speak to yourself yeah the way you speak to others can literally change your life and so that's why I'm so passionate about communication. I'm so passionate about empathy and connecting with people because it is the one thing all of us do. We all communicate. Even if you're not saying anything, you're communicating. We all do it. It's the thing that connects us all. And it has the this in, infinite power to just change the dynamic of relationships, business, you name it. So yeah, I, I totally agree. Yeah, I got one on the spot question before we wrap things up here yeah. that in I forget the exact term involuntary communication, uh, it, the ones where you're not speaking the body language that yeah, nonverbal, uh, nonverbal communication. How yeah. much does that play into effect of overall communication? Because that's something we talked about in our class. Oh, my gosh. Nonverbal communication is just as powerful as your verbal communication as well. Um, I like to think of ourselves as we all have this energy in our body, right? Call it your soul, call it your spirit, your Holy Spirit, whatever you may call it. And it radiates, okay? Um, I think some people's energy radiates more. I've noticed with me, uh, I've always been that person that if I'm not happy, it's very clear that I'm not happy. Um, and if I'm really happy, you can just feel it when I walk into the room. And sometimes, so going back to your question, nonverbal communication is really important. It's how we dress. It's how we carry ourselves, shoulders back. Smiling is, is really important. Eye contact is also crucial. What we do with our hands, how we hold them, how we cross them, how we touch people. I did this study with some colleagues at Michigan State University on the power of touch with supportive communication. So if you touch someone 
when you are giving them a supportive message, just the power of that touch communicates safety and, you know, a relationship there. So it's crucial. But in regards to nonverbal communication, even like I said, even when you're not communicating, you're communicating something. Sometimes we have to fake it, unfortunately, um, to get our message across. I think of, um, I just watched this interview by Jessie J. If you don't know her, she's a singer and she is really famous. And this pack, I think it was in 2022, she suffered a miscarriage and five, I think like the next day she went on stage and did this whole act, this comedic act and sang. And she talks about everyone's like, oh my gosh, she held it all together, blah, blah, blah. But then she got back in and she says how she just fall, fell to her knees. There have been moments where I've been teaching and to my students, I probably looked like I did every day, but inside they didn't know that I was dealing with something at home or, and it's, and that all attests to nonverbal communication. So that's why I say nonverbal communication is just as important as verbal communication and just as powerful because it can skew perceptions of events, right? Um, and just being mindful of it. Yeah. And, and just so, because someone at a corporate office comes in and said, and they seem fine and they seem like everything's okay. Doesn't mean everything's okay. And doesn't mean that they have everything put together. And I think that's where Gen Z millennials, every generation we're on social media, we're able to have this persona of who we are, but in reality, it's, we, we all have family issues. We all have romance issues. We all have sibling issues um, we all have corporate job issues and just because there's social media doesn't mean everything's hunky dory. And so be aware of the power of nonverbal communication as well. Yeah. That's, it's so true and impactful too, because I can think of so many times where I just have to show up and put my best face forward, even though I feel awful. And, you know, like this comes back to not sharing some of those things that go on behind the scenes, literally within the past week, I had these back-to-back -back calls. I'm doing great on the calls, but then literally 30 minutes after I'm like throwing up, I'm having this off. My whole day is just completely off because I had to hold it up so long and be strong and, you know, show up for those things that I said I was going to do. And like, that was literally within the past week. So like this happens all the time, but my nonverbal communication, I'm got that energy, I'm smiling, I'm putting everything I can, but that's also depleting as well. So when you said that she just dropped to her knees afterwards, I'm like, I dropped to my knees, like two feet from where I'm sitting right now, just this week. So like, it, it's very impactful. And the way that you can do that, it's it takes up some some inner courage. Um, yeah. And it's important to be mindful of it, right? Because yeah. I'm not sitting here saying that you should hide all of your struggles and transgressions because energy is super important. And the way you enter rooms, the, the way you talk to people has a ripple effect on a network of other individuals. But I'm not saying you're not going to have a bad day. But what I am saying is there's a way to communicate that with the people around you, right? And so instead of being put offish and nonverbal in certain situations you can't right like maybe you were on a podcast call and you couldn't in the middle pause it right and handle your illness which 
I, you're just a wonderful human being, Dan. Like, I can't believe you. You are so strong. I would never be able to do that. Um, I'd be like, I have to have a timeout. I got to go. Um, but there are moments where you can say and look at people instead of being put offish or, you know, not feeling well, say, I'm not feeling okay in this moment. And I'm just going to be vulnerable with you all here that something may happen in the next 20 minutes where I need to step away. Right. Um, I remember I, uh, an example that comes to my mind in regards to nonverbal communication at a time I tried to hide it was when my grandfather passed away. I was working as a waitress and the day he passed away, I had a shift and I went and I, I worked at Saltgrass and I was a waitress. And if you know anything about Saltgrass, we're very proud. It's a Texas steak joint. And I remember I went to a table and this individual, this male got the same drink my grandfather would always get. And I just lost it. And I should have had the courage because it it does take courage to communicate your your vulnerabilities. And I should have had the courage to call in that night and say, hey, I think I need some time or I'm not doing okay. And that's okay. It's okay not to be okay. And I think, again, going back to what I was saying earlier, I think you'll be surprised at how many people will understand that about you and that they're not going to hate you and to not be afraid of how people are going to react. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I had to call off a podcast like a month ago for that same reason. I wasn't feeling well the day of the podcast. And even this time I was thinking about rescheduling 10, 20 minutes before we started recording. Like I was really debating this and then I had a back to back. And so like, it was just this thing that I had to, do I tell them? Or do I not tell them? And that was this internal conflict within that I had to decide in the moment. And I was like, no, this is a big one. I got to do it. So like, there's just certain moments, but like, it's okay. When I did say that I had to reschedule with this other guest, she took it like, great. She's just like, I totally understand. You have to put your health first. Let me know when you're available next. Like no problem at all. And then we recorded the next week and it was great. So like, don't be afraid to do that. And that may sound hypocritical. Like I just didn't, but I also did at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. You just have to play it by ear, I guess. Yeah. And that comes with that growth mindset, learning more about yourself because 10 years from now, Dan might look back the 10, uh, 10 years from now, Dan might look back and be like, oh yeah. Like I learned a lot from that moment where like, now I know that if I feel that way, I, you know, and we can, you can call it a failure. You cannot call it a failure. Right. But every day we fail at something or we learn from something that we're doing. Um, in both our corporate, our interpersonal life and our interpersonal life. So yeah, we're all just growing. Comes back to the saying, we learn something new every day. (laughs) Something new every day. And I'll, the saying that my father always taught me was the day you stop learning is the day that you die. And I think that's also where my love for education and connecting with people comes comes from is I the rush you get or I get a rush from learning some new knowledge and being able to connect with people and so like I said knowledge is power but only if you take action on it yeah so good so true and this conversation has been so interesting definitely diving into some of the communication and stuff that we don't normally talk about here so thank you for providing that new perspective for us today and 
I got one last question before we wrap things up here. Um, it's been awesome. So thank you for going the extra mile today. If you could go back in time and give advice to your younger self when you were the loneliness, lacking confidence, and struggling the most, what would you say to her? Hmm. There's so much I would want to say. So I'm thinking of like if um there's so much I want to say to you, but the biggest thing I would say is trust the voice within. And that resonates because when my mother was incarcerated, uh, I got a, a, a CD by Christina Aguilera and she has a song called the voice within on it. And I remember I would just play it on loop. Right. And it's basically Christina kind of talking to her younger self and saying, trust the voice within. And I wouldn't go back and change anything. And I would say to myself, you're going to go through a lot of trials. You're going to go through a lot of tribulations. You're going to be lonely. You're stronger than all of that, but just tr trust the voice within. Yeah, so good. We're always stronger than we think we are, and we can do more than we think as well. And, you know, even in those tough times where it seems like we can't go anymore, we can't take another step, we can always take that next step. And even if it's we need some support. We need to ask for help just to take that step. We can still do it. So again, I wouldn't change anything for me either, even though really bad situations, like that's what made us into who we are today. That's why we have the message that we have today. And that's why we're so passionate about just making an impact and helping others. So exactly, that's, that's a beautiful exactly. message. Well, thank you so much for allowing me to come on your podcast and talk about communication, which is something that we all do and probably just put on the backside and don't think that that makes a huge difference in our relationships and the way we go about our daily lives. But it truly does. It, it ties into everything we do. So thank you so much, Stan. Yeah, of course. And before you head out, like, let us know how we can support you and, you know, what else you got going on and how we can get involved. Yes. So um, like I said, I'm about to finish finish up my PhD program and I am going to be Dr. Amanda Allard and I'm starting a couple of business ventures. I am open to professional development workshops. I'm open to speaking engagements and I'm working on my professional website for that right now with a graphic designer. Similarly, um, I am engaged and I noticed this nugget of an opportunity in the wedding world for wedding speech consulting. So please follow me on social media to um, because that's where I'll be posting about it. Um, I believe that the name that we're kind of settling on right now is Wedded Words. And this is where I help people write their vows. I help them write their groomsmen and bridesmaid speeches. Um, but something I'm, I love love and I'm getting married and I noticed that um, we're all scared of public speaking and there's like in the wedding world, you literally spend so much money to make sure the day is so perfect why wouldn't you spend money on making sure that the words that are said at your wedding are also perfect? So I'm doing that. And then, um, yeah, I just did a TEDx talk. Please go watch it. Um, it's a very nice condensed version of everything we basically talked about today. And yeah, just follow me on social media for more to come because I'm super excited. I'm going to fail more and I'm going to succeed more. And um, yeah, I'm just really excited for what the future has to hold because I'm entering a new chapter in my life post-academia. 
Yeah, so go check out Amanda on her social, follow along on the journey, check in on the failures and see how those translate into her success that's going to continue to come. And personally, I'm so excited to hear about the the wedding talks and how that goes because that just seems like a really cool niche that is really needed as well. So, and you're you're just the perfect person to do it. So, I'm excited. Thank you so much, Dan. Of course. Amanda, thank you for taking time to be here with us today and being vulnerable to share your story. You are a star that lights up the night and brightens the world with your presence. Thank you for impacting my life and shaping me into a better person and sharing those insights of wisdom with us today. Keep shining like the star you are and congratulations on getting engaged. Thank you. Are you ready to take charge of your health and transform your life? Well, get ready because we have the solution for you. Introducing the Nova Fusion 21-Day Wellness and Resilience Challenge, the ultimate program designed to stack massive momentum, achieve peak performance, and spark your transformation. In just 21 days, you can experience a total wellness revolution. Our challenge is jam-packed with daily inspiration, education, downloadable resources, and exciting challenges to keep you fired up and on track. But that's not all. When you join the challenge, you'll also become a member of our exclusive Nova Fusion family. Together we'll support and uplift one another as we continue to grow and thrive. Unlock the secrets of the world's best wellness and resilience practices to stay mentally and physically fit for a lifetime. From renewing healing practices to transformative high-performance techniques, we've got you covered. And here's something that sets us apart. I believe in these practices so much that I'm offering a money-back guarantee. That's right, if you don't see results, you can get your money back so you have absolutely nothing to lose, but everything to gain. So what are you waiting for? Take advantage of this limited time opportunity right now. Go to novafusion.co challenge to sign up and embark on the journey of a lifetime. Let's spark your transformation together. I can't wait to see you on the other side.